Well, good morning. It is good to see you here today. If you're a first through fifth grader, you can head on to Kidmo. Yes, there they go. They've endured as long as they can endure. Um, I am glad that you're here with us today, and uh, I am excited. We've got a full row of family members here, and uh, Emma's in town. Alex is with us today, and then uh, Jonathan and Jake and the rest. I, I, we love having our kids together with us in church. And uh, anyways, we're glad they're here for fall break. Um, we're glad that you're here. And I want to talk to you about another rhythm, uh, and I don't want you to tune out. Now, some of you are going to be tempted to tune out because you're going to think, okay, I got this. I know what this is. Uh, I've got this handled, and this is just... This is what preachers talk about, and I'm just going to tell you that is not um, the way today is going to go, and this is perhaps the most important of all the rhythms. I've said that about a couple of them. They're all important, but this creates really the environment that any Christian life must follow. Now, you can't not do this rhythm and be a Christian, okay? Now, I don't say that about many things. But that's how important this one is. So if you're joining us online, if you're joining us in person, or if you're going to watch this sometime in the next few days on your way to work or whatever, take some time to process what I'm going to share with you. Because, uh, And I'm going to use a lot of Jesus' words. So I don't make this claim uh, you know, without merit, because Jesus made this claim. So I want to share that with you. I'm going to give you some ways that this can be applied. I want us to kind of debunk some myths about this rhythm. And also let you know that one rhythm actually leads into three if you're going to practice this. So, today is the rhythm of loving others, of confession, and of forgiveness. You literally cannot do any of those without the others. So, uh, let's pray. And if you want to follow along in version, you can do that. You can take your own notes. You can email your notes to you. Or if you're hungry and you're just wondering when Mark's going to be done, you can follow along there as well. All right, let's pray. Father, God, I thank you that we have been able to come and to worship you. I thank you that all that, that we're sharing, you have made sure that we have been able to share by passing it down generation after generation after generation of people who have sought after you. I pray you would open our hearts, and I pray that you would remove the fog that we often put around this rhythm and help us to see it as you see it, but more importantly, help us to practice it so that we not only bring glory to you, but we show other people how beautiful it is to know you. Uh, so in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's start from the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Why were we created? It's a big question that we all have. Most people will spend at least some time, if not their entire life, asking the question of why was I created? What does God want for me? What is my purpose in life? I can't uh, outline for every person, much less myself, everything you should do in your life, what your career should be, or what your life's going to look like in every season, because every season can be different. I don't propose to be able to do that, but we can look back and see what did God intend for us. And in the very beginning, God created everything, and he said it was what? Good. Everything was good. Now, we know that a choice was made. A choice was made that said Okay, God, it was good, but honestly, it could be better. And the serpent planted the seed that said, you know what? You can be just like God if you will just eat from this tree that he told you not to eat from. And what came into humanity was not just judgment for sin, but it was the reality of choosing to break from what God wanted for us from the beginning and it literally affected everything. It affected relationships. It affected us physically. It affected the relationship we have with the rest of creation. And then what God would do from that point forward to return us, restore to us what he had always wanted. Now as we go through and we kind of read through the story of creation, what we find is that God created us to do a few things. We were supposed to look after the creation. In some ways, we were supposed to expand the creation. We were definitely supposed to fill the world with other people. And along the way, we were supposed to do something along with these daily tasks of taking care of creation 
And that was we were to love God, walk with Him, grow to know Him, and that we would love each other. Now, we quickly dismiss this mindset because our idea of love is generally not the idea of what God says love is. So we quickly dismiss any talk about what does it mean to love others or or how am I going to live this rhythm of loving people? Am I just going to skip through life? I'm going to smile at people and I'm never going to say anything that hurts anybody's feelings. And if somebody asks me for something, I'm going to give it to them. And I'm just going to be a person that's constantly giving and eventually be be empty. A lot of people see love that way. Or it's this kind of Pollyanna, just, I don't care about anything. Everything's just wonderful all the time. That is not the image of love that God has, nor is it the definition that continues to develop in our culture that says love is a total acceptance of anything you want to do. I don't care what it is. That is not the definition of what love is in Scripture. But yet we are called over and over again to love people. Now, another fallacy we have, or another myth that we need to debunk, is the reality that we're supposed to love people more than ourselves. And while there is evidence for that, and we're going to read that in just a minute, God is not saying you need to, you need to you know, totally not care about yourself. What he's saying is, is we need to elevate other people. And so our relationships for ourselves and with others needs to be on an even plane. We, we need to love ourselves, but we don't need to love ourselves more than others. That's what sin does. Sin causes us to love ourselves more than anyone else. That's where greed comes from. That's where we want to get ours even if you don't get yours comes from. That's where competitiveness that breaks relationships comes from. I have to win. You have to lose. I don't want to lose. There are all kinds of ways that we break down when we stop loving other people and There are those that will spend their life, they perceive, being a doormat because they never get their own needs met while they're trying to meet the needs of others. That's not what God wants for you. So what does God want? And how do we understand this rhythm of love? Well, Jesus taught us that love was our chief goal in life. It is our chief goal. It It is not retirement. It is not a big bank account. It is not that you win every game. It is not um, that other people look at you and go, man, you have got it together way better than me. It is not that we have power. It is not that we somehow just have our lives together more than others. Our chief goal in life is to love. So it seems like it should be a good idea for us to spend a significant amount of our lives figuring out how to best do that. While love encompasses feelings, love also isn't just a feeling. You know, when you have a, a baby and they bring you this newborn baby for the first time, you're all joy and all happiness and you're making all these promises and I'm going to give up my life for you and I'm going to do all these things. But three months later, when it's still three in the morning and they're still crying for a feeding, the feeling may be a little different, right? Then... You may love your job, and then something changes in your job, or someone that you love to work with moves on, and that job you love, now you don't love quite the same way. Maybe you got married, and it was great, and now it's not so great. We're not in love anymore. So what is love? We've got to spend some time talking about what it is to understand what it is that we're supposed to do and Jesus taught us that this was our chief goal in life. Matthew 22, 36. You've heard this many times here. Teacher, what's the great commandment of the law? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the law of the prophets. Now, Jesus says this in a number of ways in a number of places. I love this one because he is saying everything about everything that God has ever done in your life or for you has been about these two things. Every prophecy, every commandment, every action, every judge, every king, every time that he said, no, you can't have something, has always been about loving God and loving each other. All of the law, all of the prophets, everything God has ever done has been about that. So it seems, it feels like Christians should be really good at loving. If we took a poll in the world, 
and said, who are the most loving people in the world? I'm not sure Christians would be listed in the top ten. I'm not sure about that. In some places, and then for some people, absolutely. Sometimes we get it right, and sometimes we don't. Jesus also said it like this in John 13. He said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. And he goes on, and this is sometimes just, it convicts me so deeply and so quickly. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So if we don't have love for one another, what are we not? We're not disciples. That's this is, this is Jesus. This is not Mark. This is not me trying to manipulate the text, and then I'm going to have five things I want you to do on your way out. Uh, this is Jesus saying the point of being my disciple. It's not that you can't be my disciple. The point is, is that by following me, that means you're going to be loving other people. That's what it means. And it may take time, and you may grow into it, and you may come from a background in which you you don't even know what love is because you never experienced it. There are those that never experienced love from their parents, never experienced love from... And they honestly don't know how to deal with it anymore because I don't have a healthy framework of what this is supposed to look like. And so I don't know how to love others. Jesus is really saying here is, if you're going to follow me, this it's going to look like love. The problem is, is that word love has so subjective, like we need a little more, Jesus. <laughs> What do, what do you mean by that? Well, Paul talked about it. He emphasized others over self when he talked about Jesus' example of loving others. So there's another component of love. Love is not just that feeling of elation and that you know goosebumps when you go out on a first date with someone you're really attracted to. It, he said when Jesus loved people, he sacrificed something of himself for that love. That is not a cultural definition of love today because the cultural definition of today will not allow sacrifice for the sake of someone else. Only mutual beneficial arrangements, not sacrifice. Like if you've got to give something, that's not who you want to be with. Paul said this is what Jesus did. Philippians 2 verse 1, he says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, which so I, I get where Paul's coming from here because Sometimes I feel like this. Like, if you listen to anything I have to say, right? Do you ever have people like that in your life? Like, if you would just hear this one thing, you know? I feel like that's what he's saying here. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love being in full accord and of one mind. Oh, how bad we are at this. I don't think anyone would say, you know what, I just feel like, you know what I feel like is our strength in America? We are of one mind. I don't think anyone would say that. If they do, then they clearly don't ever go outside or turn on a TV, right? Which may be, may be a better life, to be honest. Even in the church, I've talked um, about Phyllis Tickle in the past. Her name is funny, and you're like, what? That sounds like a bad joke. Uh, Phyllis Tickle was a church historian, real person. And she said, she's, she's passed away now. She said, every 500 years, the church throws a yard sale. And what she meant by that is every 500 years, we look back at how our faith has progressed, how our practice matches with Scripture, and we figure out what has worked and what has not worked. And then every 500 years or so, we come to the place of saying, yep, we're getting rid of this, and we really need to embrace this instead. Some examples of that were first century church, Jesus rose from the dead, ascended into heaven. We have Acts 1 and 2, the church as it begins and gets started. 350 years later, Christians are being tormented and killed. Persecution is not, uh, no, we won't write Merry Christmas on your coffee cup. Persecution was, we're going to take you and your kids, and we're going to put you in the arena and let the lions tear you apart. So their idea of persecution was very different until Constantine enters the scene and says, now it's legal to be a Christian. Not only legal to be a Christian, it's preferable to be a Christian, and if you want any power in my kingdom, you will be a Christian, which is where we introduce the idea of Christianity and political power. That was 350 A.D. 
You jump ahead a little more than 500 years, 1000 AD, and the church is now at odds. We are fighting with each other. We disagree with each other. We have people that are in control that we think they are ruining our faith. And we have what has come to be called the Great Schism, and the church splits into the Eastern and the Western church. We're done with all this working together. You do your thing, we'll do our thing. Another 500 years goes by, the church continues to go through the Dark Ages. Interestingly, the Dark Ages are called that for a number of different things. One of the reasons the Dark Ages are dark is because the the, the church lost its light. We became something else. And a number of people, not just Martin Luther, but a number of people said, this is not right. We need to reform this thing. And the church said, ha, 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 no, get out. And we have the Protestant Reformation where the Protestant church and the Catholic church separate. That's about 500 years ago. We're about 500 years later. Now we're wrestling with identity again. We have the birth of denominations through the uh, Protestant Reformation, and now we're separate. And we have denominations saying, we're believers, you're not believers. We're the real church. You're not the real church. Part of this 500-year yard sale I'm hoping we're about to have is a return to unity amongst those who say we love and follow Jesus. Because we make things so super complicated. Don't we? Two weeks ago I talked about the rhythm of simplicity. And I, some of you were asked, like, Mark, you misquoted. There's not a verse that you quoted. And I, well, there was a verse. I just gave the wrong reference. I said it was 1 Thessalonians. 829, but it was Ecclesiastes 830. They are very different. One's in the Old Testament, one's in the New. They are different. But the verse is the same that I quoted. That was my point. Thank you, Don. And Ecclesiastes 830 says, God made man simple. But man's complex problems are of his own devising. I feel like that's what denominations have become for us. We devised this thing, and now they're a mess. Just a mess. Anyways, if we're following Jesus, according to Paul, we're going to be of the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or deceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, which is where we get the idea that we should be down here and others should be up here. But it's not really what Paul's saying. Jesus doesn't say, I love you more when you love yourself less, unless our love for ourselves is somewhere way up here. He doesn't say, I just I want a person who's absolutely destitute, who feels absolutely abandoned. They don't care about themselves at all. They have zero self-confidence. You want to know who had self-confidence in... Uh, the New Testament, uh, the apostles, while that comes, you could say was came from Jesus, they were not a group of people that walked around and said, woe is me. They were bold, confident. And even when they were threatened with death, they said, how can we stop talking about what we're talking about? Like this Jesus thing. Like, have you even heard it yet? It's so amazing. This relationship we have with each other, I, when we read Acts 1 and 2, we, we, read Act, we, we read the Bible like, well, this is what you're supposed to do. But there are so many places in Scripture, it's not about what you're supposed to do, it's just about what happens when you know Jesus. And what happened was, hey, can we get together this week? I just want to spend some time with you. Can we just talk about this Jesus thing? Like, it's, like it's revolutionized my life. I know, me too. Whereas what we tend to turn it into is, you had better get together with somebody this week. Which is not what happened. No one got together, and Jesus never said, um, I keep thinking I've got my glasses on, I don't. It's a, I guess a habit now. But Jesus never said, okay, if you love me, you will meet weekly. Jesus never said that. They didn't do it because Jesus told them they had to. They did it because they found there was something valuable there and they were excited about it. That's what happens when we know Jesus. That's what happens when we begin to love other people and when we find something. So what is this thing that they found? He goes on. 
He said, have this mind in verse 5. Have, I'm still in Philippians 2, by the way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God was highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here is Jesus. Now if we go back and we we read throughout the rest of the Bible as a historical context, what we find is that when God decided to create, he spoke, and it was actually Jesus that went out, and it was through him that all things were created. Jesus didn't just, you know, arrive on the scene 2,000 years ago. He was always there. The Trinity's always been there. He spoke, and Jesus caused these things to happen. And yet he never saw himself as equal with God, even though we know that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are equal. But Jesus himself didn't say, Oh, God, I don't agree with you on this. And instead he humbled himself. And it was not because Jesus would have disagreed with the Father, I don't believe, by the way. Like, I don't think Jesus was like, God is, he, he's off his rocker. That old man, like he needs to be put out to pasture. Um... I don't think that's the way Jesus was. The reality was that Jesus was not trying to say you don't disagree with God. What he was trying to say is, in my place of loving you, it is not my place to elevate myself. He was demonstrating humility to us. Humility is a dirty word for a lot of people. It's too close to humiliation, which we all hate. Jesus loved with humility, counting others as important. Peter struggled with this humility of Jesus, which we read a few weeks ago in John chapter 13, when Jesus was washing their feet. And Peter says to him, you shall never wash my feet, which I I believe in the text doesn't say this, but I really believe what's going on in Peter is him saying, yeah, because, you know, like, I don't want to do this to my else. That's exactly right. I'm not going to wash somebody else's feet. Jesus, no, absolutely, you are so great. And I'm I'm not doing it for those people out there. That's one of the reasons Jesus did it. And Jesus, being the Jesus he is, answered him and said, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. In other words, this lesson is the core. This is the core of what it means to be a believer. We miss this. We live in a competitive world in which being right is more important than loving well. And winning should be soft after over all things. And i got to be careful because I'm really happy with the winners yesterday. Right? There's probably a few more people in here that are as well. (laughs) The Vols won, Don. The Vols won. It didn't snow. That's right. (laughs) The Vols beat an SEC team. No one thought it was possible, and they did it. All right. Anyway, that's enough of that. But we do live in that world of competitiveness, of I need to be right, I need to be a winner. And Jesus says, that's not what this is about. For every winner, there's generally a lot of people who didn't win, right? And it feels good to be the winner until we're not. Peter struggled with the idea of humility, that other people should do well, that I should cheer for others. When we go to our kids' games, like I cheer both sides, I'm... Not really probably the best fan. I cheer both sides. Another kid does something well, I'm like, man, that was great. Right? Love is a choice that followers of Jesus consistently make. It's not a feeling. Even as a rhythm, it's not something that comes naturally to us. This is the result of brokenness in the world and sin. Love is a choice that followers of Jesus constantly make. One right after the other. Time and time again. First John 4, Apostle John describes it like this. He said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Let's think again. 
Love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. That's harsh, right? Not very loving, is it? The point where understanding what love really is does matter. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Which again, the point here is that love is not just reciprocated. We are the originators of loving others, whether they reciprocate or not, which is what God did. He chose to love us, not because we loved Him. He just chose to love us. This is important in a culture in which I will love you if you love me first. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Again, this is is the core of our faith. This idea of loving others. So how do we love the way God intended from the beginning when we were first in the garden before we got to choose what was right and wrong in our own eyes? Instead, we just followed with what God said. How do we do this now? And I would, I would, I'm going to give you five things. They don't have to be in order of anything, and they certainly aren't exhaustive. But these are five things I want you to know before you leave today. One is that love chooses to be a part of others' lives and for them to be a part of your life. You choose to have relationships with other people. Now in the church, we struggle with this. Like, we have some guests in the room today, and you come in, and um, you're hoping that some of the people that come here regularly are going to, to approach you, maybe, and maybe that's your biggest fear, actually, is that someone would approach you. But the reality is, is that somewhere in our minds, we have decided that the loving thing is someone else approaches us. The loving thing is that we approach someone. Now, churches generally aren't known for their approaching people they don't know. In fact, a lot of people walk in and walk out because no one ever asks anything about them, much less your name. But the goal is a tension in relationship with each other and that what we give to each other we receive from each other, which means I invite you into my life so that we can have a relationship. When a person walks in the door here, what I hope is that a guest will seek someone out to say, hi, I'm new. And But I also hope that every person who's been here at least once will seek out anyone they don't know and say, hi, my name's so-and-so, who are you? It becomes less about who should be first. Everybody should be first. We have to make a choice to choose other people. That can be choosing to be in a relationship with parents who your kids go to school with. And you don't want your kids ending up like their kids. But what's interesting is they don't want their kids ending up like your kids either, right? That's how it usually goes. You choose to include them in your life. You choose to seek out people who are not loved, to say, I love you. I'm here with you. I'm here for you. We choose that. And for our introverts in the room, I know that this is probably the point I lost you. (laughs) But I'm telling you, you will not have a full life until you begin to choose to have relationships with other people. You will not have a full life. It may be uncomfortable. It may be physically painful. But you will find someone that makes it all worth it. Love chooses to be a part of others' lives and for them to be a part of ours, even when it costs us something. Even when it costs, especially when it costs us something. Second thing is this. Love evokes feelings, but it is driven by choice, not feelings. You go on your first date because of how you feel about this person. But you stay married for 60 years because you chose to love them down the road. It evokes feelings, but it's driven by choice, 
Do we come to church together and someone's going to hurt your feelings? It's going to happen. We choose to love them, even when they hurt our feelings. We choose to be offended. We choose not to be offended. We choose to forgive. We choose not to forgive. We choose to confess our sins. We choose not to confess our sins. We choose to welcome you into my life. We choose not to let you come into my life. Those are choices we make. And whenever we let our culture say it's about feeling and it's about everything being easy, and if that relationship costs you something, you should end that relationship. If we go with that logic, Jesus should never have died for us. Never have died for us. And we should never follow his example. Jesus went so far as to say the greatest act of love is to give your life up for someone. Love evokes feelings, but it's driven by choice. We choose to take care of each other. We choose to encourage each other. I've got to tell you, I have friends that they choose to keep up with me. (laughs) They choose to say, Mark, how are you doing? They choose to encourage me. And I've got, some, I've got some friends, and I hope you do too. I've got some friends, sometimes they got to work to figure out how to encourage me because I might be a jerk. I might have been a jerk for a while. And they got to think about somehow. <laughs> like you had to do some mental, emotional gymnastics to find something to encourage in me because I've not been very uh, loving myself lately. I have friends like that. You need friends like that. This is the kind of friends that Christians are supposed to be. Far too often, we're the kinds of Christians that if I disagree with you, not only will I not let you be in my life, I will let everyone know that you're not worthy to be in anyone else's life either. We are some of the most judgmental people on the face of the planet. This is not what Jesus called us to. This is not what he called us to. Love evokes feelings, but is driven by choice, not feelings. That's also a part of us working together, not just so that I make sure you're okay, but we make sure each other is okay. We, we reach multi, mutually beneficial goals. A third thing is this. Love chooses, I, and I completely stole this, by the way. I stole this from my kid's kindergarten teacher. Love chooses to give preference to others. I honestly can't remember which one it was, which one of my kids she said this to. But she was correcting, and this particular teacher, like, you know, there's good teachers, and then there's like, like that's they're, they're on a whole other level, and this was one of those whole other level teachers. And so rather than calling them down, she simply said, "I want you to remember that we give preference to others." Even if we stopped here and and you left here committed to the idea that love was giving preference to others, how would that change the way you walked out of here? How would that change what you do when you walk into work? How would that change how you, well, I'm going to be careful about this, how you parent your kids? Because that is one area that we need to be careful about giving our kids preference because they're not mature enough to know the best preference yet. That's our job to teach them that. But what would, it, what would it do to our relationships if we gave preference to each other? And I don't just mean the kind of preference that says, where do you want to go eat? I don't know, where do you want to go eat? You know, and you get locked into this endless spiral of no one just making a decision. I don't just mean that. I mean in life. I mean, like, I really want to do something today. But I know you really want to do something else. I'm going to give preference to you. Do you have anyone in your life that regularly gives you preference? It's possible that, that, that you do and you are taking it for granted, okay? And they've done it for so long. Usually, usually, like if you have older parents, they're probably regularly giving you preference. And, you know, there's a period like you never get preference. I don't want to go do that. You know, that's the way we grow up. There's a point that it's like, well, you're going. I mean, that was my life. I don't know what your life was like. That was my life. Well, you're going. And, but, but as, as we get older, we continue to give more preference to our kids, which we can totally take for granted and we can totally take advantage of. What happens when we return that preference? 
that's the relationship here. There's a tension there. There's a, I want you to have preference. No, I want you to have preference. Now listen, that is frustrating when you're hungry and you've only got an hour to eat and you spend 45 minutes of that hour trying to figure out where to go eat. That is frustrating. But if you want to see a full heart, see two people that are trying to give preference to each other and you will see full hearts. Love chooses to give preference to others. This is part of what Jesus was trying to show Peter when Peter was like, no, 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 you're not washing my feet. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're going to follow me, you've got to give preference to other people, even people you deem as less than you. Chooses to give preference. I, I read, or I didn't read, I was listening to a podcast on something else, and they said something, and it just stopped me. Every now and then, you know, a lot of podcasts end up being white noise for me. I don't know about you, but but I was, I was listening to this one podcast, and and, and they said this. They said, the problem with Americans is Americans want to be the saviors, not the people who need saving. Let that sink in. Americans, we want to be the saviors. We don't want to be the people that need saving. Which is why we're often big and bold and competitive. And you're not taking anything from us. Don't tread on me. And let me just tell you something. I don't, I don't want anybody treading on me either. If I'm quite perfectly honest, I don't like people treading on me. But if we're going to follow Jesus, there's another way. It reminds me of images like the great persecution before Constantine made it you know, legal and preferable to be a Christian. There are images of families huddled in the arena praying, praising God. The lion's approach. There's an image, if you remember, a number of Egyptian Christians who were captured. Oh gosh, it's probably been four, five, six years ago now. Led out onto a beach to be killed. And they sang hymns to God. is uncomfortable for a people who are used to being in charge of their own destiny. But this is the way of Jesus. That we find as we read through history some of the most effective movements of the gospel happen during the greatest moments of persecution. Not the greatest moments of Christian political power. Christian political power normally messes us up is not the way of Jesus. All right, I've got to get moving. Number four, love acts in the best interest of others and not just ourselves. This is, again, like giving preference. But beyond just giving preference, it doesn't mean that love is I give you whatever you want. Those of you who have addicts in your family know what this is like. They have a very specific idea of what you loving them looks like, but you know that is not love. Loving acts in the best interests of others and not just ourselves. So when we tell our kids no, that can be an act of love. We tell ourselves no, that can be an act of love. When someone says, this is what I want to do with my life, and you know that's just unhealthy. That's really unhealthy. We don't say, sounds good, have fun. We don't do that. Because we're interested in the best interest of others, not just ourselves. So how do we decide? Well, what is the best interest of others? Which is a real subjective question, isn't it? And I will say you'll spend the whole rest of your life trying to figure this question out. I know I do. There are times I feel like I know what it means to love people, and then I'm, you know, God will just, he'll just either whisper in my ear, or sometimes through someone else, he just kind of hits me with a two before, and he just says, no, Mark, that's completely wrong. It's completely wrong. And it changes us. So the question would be, well, how do we know what the best interest of others? Well, well, what does God say is good? Let's do those things. What does God say is not good? Well, let's not do those things. One of the reasons we as a church got involved with the racial reconciliation movement is because some of my friends who are not white have shared with me stories that I didn't believe at first. 
When a good friend of mine tells me he's moved into a white community and he hasn't yet walked his neighborhood until he meets everybody because he don't know how they'll respond to him, that breaks my heart. And it is in my best interest to say, you shouldn't worry about that. It changes me. It changes how I deal with people that are dealing with issues that I don't deal with, that I'm tempted to say, that's not an issue. But for them it is. For them it is an issue. I sit there with them in a public place and I see them treated differently. It moves me to want to be a part of something that elevates them in the eyes of the community because that's what God does. And that's why we do it. And that's why we're a part of that racial reconciliation conversation consistently and will be. It changes us. Why social justice is important to us. It's not just that we sit around singing songs to God and we pat each other on the back and we hug each other and say, we got it, we are good. Instead, we look around at what is best for others and we see they're hurting we should go to them. It's not singing kumbaya around a campfire. Sometimes it's running for public office, becoming an investigative journalist, or an attorney who's going to fight the injustices in the world. Sometimes that's what it means to love. Sometimes it means standing up to somebody who will do you harm because you're standing up to them. See, that's a different definition of love than just, hey, we're just going to pass out Valentine Day gifts every Sunday at church. We're loving now. Get your little sugar heart that says, I love you. Done. Sometimes loving means walking up to the boss and say, you need to stop treating her that way. Him that way. And you may lose your job or lose the demotion or get a cut in pay because of it. Of course, not officially. But you may do that because love sometimes costs us. Love, this is the Christian way. This is the way of following Jesus. Why we need people who are doctors, not just preachers. Why we need nurses, not just missionaries. Why we need people in minimum wage jobs, loving the people that they're working with. Showing them Jesus. Not just people trying to get the biggest salary they can possibly get. We need all these things. This is what love is. Love acts in the best interest of others and not just ourselves. And often means that we get taken advantage of. As did the creator of all things who allowed himself to be arrested and whipped humiliated, and murdered. See, if you're going to choose to love people, you've got to get the idea that I can never be taken advantage of out of your head. And that's hard. A lot of people actually reject Christianity for this reason, not because of Jesus. I'm back to the best interest of others and not just ourselves. All right, number five. Love grants forgiveness when wronged and asks forgiveness when someone is wronged by us. Reality is the world is broken. If I commit to what I'm telling you today, I commit, I'm going to spend every day trying to be better at loving people, I will guarantee 100% you that I am going to fail. And God has given us an avenue to follow when we fail at loving other people. It is the avenue of forgiveness. We fail to love God God forgave us through the blood of his son who shed his blood on the cross. Forgiveness. Is there someone in your mind right now that you need to forgive? Probably. Is there someone in your mind right now that you need to go ask forgiveness from? Probably. See, the rhythm of love cannot exist by itself. The rhythm of love falls apart because we are broken, messed up people who love imperfectly. The rhythm of love requires a way to restore a relationship when we fail to love well, and that rhythm is forgiveness. So you can't have the rhythm of love without the rhythm of forgiveness. You can do the rhythm of love for a short time, 
But you mess up one time and it's over. We have the rhythm of forgiveness. The lifestyle. James goes on to say in, in chapter 15 that we're supposed to confess our sins to one another, which means that there are times that in order for me to truly orchestrate forgiveness, I've got to confess something, which again, we don't like to confess. We would rather be wronged than wrong someone else. And if we do wrong someone else, we have a really hard time saying we're sorry. But there are rewards for forgiveness. There are relational rewards. There are spiritual rewards. And there are incredibly physical rewards for the act of forgiveness. Relationally, you can restore a relationship that is on the verge or has already begun to break. You can restore that relationship. Two people that are at odds or mad at each other can come back together and they can be practicing the rhythm of love again in their lives. There's a relational reward there. You actually have a stronger relationship with someone that you've had to go through the process of forgiving than someone that you've not. Because once you know, I'm going to mess up and they're going to forgive me. Or they're going to mess up and they're going to ask me to forgive them. You enter into a whole other level of, of relationship and friendship. Versus someone that you never have to deal with forgiveness from. It's really amazing because they are safe. They are someone who is real, is authentic. This is something that's really happening. And I can totally obey myself and they'll forgive me when myself is not all that great. And they know I'm going to forgive them when their authentic self isn't that great either. That's where strong relations come from. There's a spiritual reward. Number one, we are aligned with Christ. We get what he gets. We see as he sees. We become more and more like him. And interestingly, did you know there is a physical reward for forgiving someone? I, I take this from Johns Hopkins University's website, this quote I'm going to read you. I want you to listen to this. It speaks not only to the problem of a lack of forgiveness, but literally what forgiveness does to you physically within your body. It says, and I've got the link. I'll share the link later on Facebook. Whether it's a simple spat with your spouse or long-held resentment toward a family member or friend, unresolved conflict can go deeper than you may realize. It may be affecting your physical health. The good news, studies have shown the act of forgiveness can reap huge rewards for your health, lowering the risk of heart attack, improving cholesterol levels and sleep and reducing pain, blood pressure and levels of anxiety, depression and stress. And research points to an increase in the forgiveness, health, connection as you age. In, or, in other words, as you get older, like this is even more important. It goes on and says, there is an enormous physical burden to being hurt and disappointed, says Karen Schwartz, director of Mood Disorders Adult Consultation Clinic at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Chronic anger puts you into a fight or flight mode, which results in numerous changes in heart rate, blood pressure, and immune response. Those changes then increase the risk of depression, heart disease, and diabetes, among other conditions. Forgiveness, however, calms stress levels, leading to improved health. Now, I love when we find this stuff. Because there are so many places in Scripture, someone would ask, well, how do you know that the Bible is true? Because the Bible tells us stuff that it takes us, like, a long time to catch up on. Like Joseph, who refused to eat the extravagant meal. And because he chose the traditional diet of his people, he was stronger and healthier. And now we find out when you mix the kinds of foods that they wanted Joseph to eat, it leads to all kinds of chronic health problems. He knew that long before. Jesus knows that forgiveness is something that not only is it good spiritually and relationally, it's good for your health. Why is that? Did Jesus stumble upon something as this really intuitive person? Or does he know this is what we were designed, how we were designed to live? All right. I'm going to wrap up. I will tell you this. This rhythm of love and forgiveness and confession, really one rhythm. Wait, my time's up. My time is up. This can be a painful lifestyle, straight up. This is one of the reasons Jesus says we deny ourselves or we pick up our cross and we follow him, because it was a painful lifestyle for him. 
prophecies about Jesus said Jesus would be a Messiah who would come and He would be acquainted with much suffering and grief. There were times that He would look at His disciples after feeding thousands of people and He would say, are you going to leave me too? Jesus knew that this was a painful lifestyle. One of the reasons that people don't embrace it in mass. We as Christians have got to return to the embrace of love as a lifestyle does not mean that we ignore every unhealthy thing out there, but it means we also don't have to be real jerks to people. There are real issues that need Christians involved in solving those issues, but we first have to demonstrate that we belong there. We care about people, that we love people. When it comes to forgiveness, I have also learned This is not just a one-and-done deal. Matthew 18. This is is just before the parable of the unforgiving servant. If you'll remember, that's the parable where the servant uh, owes uh, this guy tons and tons of money, and and he's forgiven that debt. And then there's someone else owes him like a few dollars, and he's like, no, I'll throw you in jail until you... You know that one? That's not exactly how Jesus told it, but that's the one. Matthew 18.21 says, Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often uh, will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. I think early on in my faith and just growing up, I, I read that very differently than I do now. I read it at one time like, if they do the same thing to me seven times, should I give, forgive them all seven times? And Jesus said, oh, 77 times, 70 times, 7 times, or depending on what your translation says. And it's like, you mean that many times? I just have to just sit here and take it that many times? Sometimes I think the answer to that is yes, and sometimes no. I, I often counsel people in abusive relationships, get out of the abusive relationship. Get out. Jesus doesn't want you to sit here and get beat up. Get out. That's only been 74 times. Well, three more, and then you get out, all right? And instead, what I have found is that the act of forgiveness does not trigger an immune response that makes you forget the offense. Even after you forgive, you remember. Can anyone else attest to this reality? Like, I don't have a medical degree, but I'm pretty sure that there's plenty of evidence that this is true. Sometimes one offense... For requires me to forgive somebody 70 times, 7 times for that one offense. I'm going to forgive you. An hour later, I've got to forgive you again. A day later, I need to for- Like There are some wrongs that are going to happen to you that you're going to have to forgive over and over and over again. It's not a one-time deal. And this can be a hard thing to figure out. At what point do I bug out of this relationship? And I just will tell you, you're going to struggle with that one. You're going to struggle with that. I struggle with that. I think this is where prayer comes in. This is where having healthy relationships. See, I have relationships with people who are unhealthy. But they are not in my core. They are not in my core. I don't care how much I like spending time with them. I I put people in my core of relationships that are healthy for me. But I have others outside of that core, and that's what you need to have too. Like if I look at somebody and think, you're unhealthy, I won't have anything to do with you. That's not the way Jesus did it. But it doesn't mean that I call you up when I'm at my lowest to be encouraged by you, right? Or if I only have so much time in a week to spend with somebody, I'm going to spend it with some of the people that are the healthiest for me because I need that. There is going to be a cost for this. Forgiveness does not always mean, oh yeah, no big deal. Maybe years down the road and you're still having to say, I forgive you for that moment. I feel it still. All right, so what I'm going to leave you with. And then as with all things we talk about in here, this really does nothing unless you wrestle with it out there. 
I hope you'll wrestle with this. Three things I'll leave you with. One, love is a choice. Love is a choice. Yes, it's a feeling, but those are fleeting. They also are tricky. They tell you things are true that aren't. They tell you things aren't true that are. Love is a choice. I want you, if you're here, if, like if you're here with, with a spouse, I want you to look at each other right now and say, uh, I choose to love you. Just do it right now. If your spouse isn't here, just say it in your mind. You know you talk to yourself all the time anyways. Love is a choice. Second thing is this. Confession is a choice. Confession is a choice. Some of you need to walk out of this place and you need to go confess something. Maybe you need to confess that you didn't start the dishwasher when you said you did. Maybe it's way worse and you need somebody there with you during that confession. I will be with you. Call me. I will come with you. I'll walk with you through that time. You may need to bring in a counselor that will help you during that time. Call me. Sometimes confession is always a choice. Sometimes you need someone else to help. I will be with you. And the third one is this. Forgiveness is a choice. There are some people that you need to forgive. And here's the kicker. They don't want your forgiveness. But you need to forgive them. Just like this article from Johns Hopkins, you will, you will feel differently, even if they don't care. See, forgiveness is not always about the other person. Sometimes it's just about you. Some of you need to forgive somebody. When we make these choices, when we live by this rhythm, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is what it looks like to become more like Christ. I say this is so important. Uh, not, this is a rhythm. This is something you have to intentionally choose to incorporate into your life. When you're in line at the grocery store and the guy in front of you is in self-checkout, and let's be honest, he ain't got no business being in self-checkout. He needs some help. But he's holding me up. You can choose to love. When you pull up to the drive through window, and I don't care that you're three people down today, it took 30 minutes to get me my burger and fries. You can choose to love in that moment. When that friend who constantly misspeaks, misspeaks to you, you can choose to love them. You can choose. Even if you might want to smack them. Don't do that. You can choose to love them. When we come here, this is a, ch a choice to love. When we, we, we keep kids, that's a choice to love. We volunteer with students or on the worship team or whatever. This is all about love. When we show up, do you know, you know what would revolutionize the church? Is if every person that showed up realized something's not going to happen today unless I show up and love the people that are there. I don't care if you're signed up to do anything or not. You want to revolutionize the church? Show up and say, I'm going to love everybody I see there today. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. We'll revolutionize the church. This is the path I want us to be on. We've got some hard issues to talk about. How do we love people that reject us? How do we love people that we think are in lifestyles that we think are really bad? How do we love them? Because Jesus never said, only love the people that are in the lifestyles you like. How do we do that? We've got some hard questions in the future. We'll never get to them if we don't get this one right. Let us choose to love well. Father, I thank you for those who are here, whether they're listening or whether they're in person. These are hard issues, and there are, there are already, I believe, people in their minds are swirling about relationships that are broken or are breaking uncertain about how do I heal this relationship? How do I love this person when everything seems to go wrong? Or how do I, how do I apologize? Because if they know this thing, they'll never want to speak to me again. I don't know how to do that. I, just, I know these, some of these stories are swirling around our minds right now, and you are, are the only answer to that. I know there are some people in this room that have tried to love someone, and then they have been rejected, and it hurts, and they are scared to love again. But God, you've called us to this. 
I pray that we would love others as you have loved us. There's some confessions that need to be made today, and I pray that they'll be made today, not tomorrow, today. Those hearing those confessions will respond with grace and love themselves. And there are some in this room, and they're holding on to anger. They've been hurt. They've been cut deep. And it, it, they cannot let it go. And the person probably doesn't even care how deeply. Maybe they even enjoy it. God, you've called us to let it go. You've called us to forgive. I pray that in my own life. Help me to forgive people that hurt me. Help us to forgive people that hurt us. Father, I pray when I have when I have that moment and all I can think about is how someone else has hurt me, I will remember where I have hurt someone else so I can remember we all are in need of forgiveness. We all are in need of confession. God, I pray we would see You and we would see You clearly that we would be able to love because You have first loved us. Let us be able to follow Your example. Move in our community, our congregation, moving the lives of the people that are here, moving the lives of the people that need to be here. Let us, if we don't get anything else right, let us get this right. Bring healing to us. Restore our friendships that have been broken for whatever reason over these last few months or years. Father, let us become more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, that's it. Y'all have a good week. I will see you next week.